Please take your Bible and turn with me to the book of Numbers. You can find your way to the 13th chapter of Numbers. Before we begin to read the Word of God together, I'll ask you a question. Are you aware of the fact that God loves underdogs? Quite frankly, the Bible is a book largely about underdogs. In the book of Deuteronomy chapter 7, when God is speaking to the people of Israel, He makes this comment. He says, The Lord your God chose you out of all the peoples on the face of the earth to be His people. You are His treasured possession. The Lord loved and still loves the people descended from Abraham. In the next verse, in Deuteronomy chapter 7, the scripture says, The Lord did not set His affection upon you and choose you because you were more numerous than other peoples, but you were the fewest of all peoples. The Lord didn't look upon the greatest nation or the greatest number of people. Rather, He looked upon a despised nation. A nation which was a nation in bondage. They had been slaves for over 400 years. And they were under the thumb of Pharaoh of Egypt. This had taken a toll on them in many regards. Not the least of which had to do with their own view of who they were. People who have been in slavery for any length of time are beaten down in their souls. And that was true of this group as well. But the Lord saw something in them that He wanted to do in them. He wanted to take underdogs and show what He could do to transform them and finally to transform the world. One of the members of that nation, a generation removed from the passage that we're looking at, today, was a woman by the name of Naomi. Naomi and her husband, Elimelech, lived in Bethlehem of Judea. Does that ring a bell? And a great famine came upon the land. And therefore they heard that there was food in the nearby nation of Moab, what we would call a Gentile nation, a non-Jewish nation. So Elimelech took her, Naomi, their two sons, Malon and Kilion, And they made the trek to the country of Moab, and there they lived, and they were taken care of by the Lord. It was there that their sons married two Moabitesses, one of whom is named Ruth. One of the books of our Bible is named after her. It's her story, actually. It's a story of Naomi and Ruth, but primarily about Ruth. When they arrived back in Bethlehem, when the problems of famine had been lifted off of Israel. They were both widows by this time because Elimelech, the wife of Naomi, husband rather, of Naomi, had died. And also, Ruth's husband, the son of Naomi, had died. And they were destitute. But as God would have it, He had built into the law of Moses that there would be provision for such people. The poor could go to the fields of those who were more affluent. And when the fields were harvested, 
the harvesters were instructed to leave the corners for the poor, widows and orphans and the destitute. And so Naomi said, we have a kinsman. Actually, he is my husband's kinsman. His name is Boaz. And the way in which she describes him in the second chapter of the book of Ruth is this way. He is a man of standing in the community. This man was a prominent man. He was no underdog. He was at the top of the food chain, as it were, among the Israelites. And so Naomi said, go to his field and see if you can get some food from his harvest. Ruth did as she was told. And she met this man, Boaz. And long story short, they were married. Ruth, not even a descendant of Abraham. She was not even one of the chosen people of God. But God chose her as a Moabitess, as what we call a Gentile, a non-Jew, to bless the world. To become more than an underdog. This is how that happened. You know the story, perhaps. But it was her great-grandson, whom we have come to know as David, the great king of Israel, the greatest king in the history of Israel. The king from whom Jesus himself is descended, which would indicate in the line of Ruth is Jesus. Jesus also had her as one of his great, 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 however many great grandmothers. You see, the Lord saw a woman who was an underdog, a woman of little dignity, and he chose her for his honor and his glory. David himself, in a sense, was an underdog. Do you remember when God told Samuel, the great prophet, that there needed to be a replacement for King Saul because he was not doing his job as he should? Do you remember the story? Samuel went to the house as he was ordered of a man named Jesse, Jesse being the grandson of Ruth. He went there and he told Jesse what the Lord had told him, that he was to come there and he would find among his sons the man who would be anointed king to succeed Saul. So, Jesse, surprised, but pleasantly surprised, called his seven sons in. Beginning with the oldest, Eliab, he presented him to Samuel. And Samuel, when he saw Eliab, he said, this must be the one. He was a tall, strapping young man. He was good in his appearance. He had the bearing of a king already. But the Spirit of God said to Samuel, not Eliab. Then he went to the second and the third, all the way down to the seventh. And in each case, the Spirit of God said, no, 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 no. Samuel was puzzled. He turns to Jesse and he says, Jesse, are there not others who are your sons in your household? Jesse, I can imagine, just sort of shrugged. He said, well, there's my youngest And he's just a shepherd boy. He's out tending the sheep. And then Samuel said, we will not sit down until he arrives. Word was sent to David. We don't know how far away he was. He left his sheep, which he had been tending in the field. He came, and as soon as he walked in the door, the Spirit of God says, he's the man. He is the one who will succeed Saul as the king who will be a man after my own heart. David was... In a way, an afterthought, wasn't he? By the world's way of thinking. But he was an underdog whom God chose to be such an excellent leader of his people. 
In the New Testament, in the book of 1 Corinthians, Paul writes these words to the church at Corinth. He said, brothers, remember what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise according to human standards. Not many of you were influential. Not many of you are of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God took the despised things of the world, the things which are not, to nullify the things that are in the world, so that no one may boast before Him. You see, the Lord specializes and delights, I might add, in taking underdogs, people that nobody else would consider as being candidates for being champions or victorious people in the world, and He transforms them. This group of people that we're going to read about today from Numbers 13 and 14, the men over 20 years of age numbered 603,450. That's a lot of men, the age of 20 and above. There were a lot of younger males, and there were a bunch of females for sure there. And so this mass of people, these people who in their own minds were outcasts and underdogs, for centuries they had probably wondered, where is our God? Why has He forgotten us? Why has He allowed us to be in this situation? Well, those people are the people who undoubtedly, all of them probably with a few exceptions, we're going to see two to be sure, who thought themselves victims. Well, the Lord wanted them to be victorious. And as we look at this passage of Scripture, we're going to ask the Lord to reveal to us what is the difference between somebody who is a victim and a victor. We're going to begin in chapter 13 with verse 26. Numbers 13, 26. The spies who had been sent to spy out the land, you remember there were twelve of them, one representing each of the tribes of Israel. They came back to Moses and Aaron and the whole Israelite community at Kadesh in the desert of Paran. There they reported to them and to the whole assembly and showed them the fruit of the land. They gave Moses this account. We went into the land to which you sent us, and it does flow with milk and honey. Here is its fruit. But the people who live there are powerful, and the cities are fortified and very large. We even saw descendants of Anak there. Anak was a giant. Goliath, whom David faced off with as an underdog, I might add. He was a descendant of Anak. They were incredibly large human beings. Verse 29 says, The Amalekites live in the Negev, the Hittites, Jebusites, and Amorites, live in the hill country, and the Canaanites live near the sea and along the Jordan. Then Caleb silenced the people before Moses and said, We should go up and take possession of the land, for we can certainly do it. But the men who had gone up with him said, We cannot attack those people. They are stronger than we are. And they spread among the Israelites a bad report about the land they had explored. They said, the land we explored devours those living in it. All the people we saw there are of great size. We saw the Nephilim there, the descendants of Anak, 
come from the Nephilim. We seem like grasshoppers in our own eyes. That sounds like a victim to me, doesn't it, to you? And we look the same to them. That night, all the people of the community raised their voices and wept aloud. All the Israelites grumbled against Moses and Aaron, and the whole assembly said to them, If only we had died in Egypt or in the desert. Why is the Lord bringing us to this land only to let us fall by the sword? Our wives and children will be taken as plunder. Wouldn't it be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to each other, We should choose a leader and go back to Egypt. Then Moses and Aaron fell face down in front of the whole Israelite assembly gathered there. Let me pause here and take note of this. When in the book of Numbers we see Moses falling down, it's in fear of God. He is in awe of what's going to happen because invariably when we see him falling face to the ground before the Lord, it's in anticipation of God's punishing his people. Verse 6 says, Joshua, a son of Nun, and Caleb, son of Jephunneh, who were among those who had explored the land, tore their clothes, obviously a sign of deep despair, and said to the entire Israelite assembly, The land we passed through and explored is exceedingly good. If the Lord is pleased with us, He will lead us into that land, a land flowing with milk and honey, and will give it to us. Only do not rebel against the Lord, and do not be afraid of the people of the land, because we will swallow them up. Their protection is gone, but the Lord is with us. Do not be afraid of them. But the whole assembly talked about stoning them, meaning Caleb and Joshua. Now, the next several verses record a prayer which Moses prays to God for God's glory and for God's forgiveness of his people for the way in which they have responded to this report. So let's go down to verse 26. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, How long will this wicked community grumble against me? I have heard the complaints of these grumbling Israelites. So tell them, as surely as I live, declares the Lord, I will do to you the very things I heard you say. In this desert, your bodies will fall. Every one of you 20 years old or more who was counted in the census and who has grumbled against me, not one of you will enter that land I swore with uplifted hand to make your home, except Caleb, son of Jephunneh, and Joshua, son of Nun. As for your children that you said would be taken as plunder, I will bring them in to enjoy the land you have rejected. But you, your bodies will fall in the desert. Your children will be shepherds here for 40 years, suffering for your unfaithfulness until the last of your bodies lies in the desert. For 40 years, one year, for each of the 40 days you explored the land. You will suffer for your sins and know what it is like to have me against you. I, the Lord, have spoken, and I will surely do these things to this whole wicked community which has banded together against me. They will meet their end in this desert. Here, they will die. So the men Moses had sent to explore the land who returned and made the whole community grumble against him 
by spreading a bad report about him. These men responsible for spreading the bad report about the land were struck down and died of a plague before the Lord. Of the men who went to explore the land, only Joshua son of Nun and Caleb son of Jephunneh survived. Let's see what the Lord would teach us about the contrast between people who are victims and people who are victors in this life. There will be five contrasts. I'll begin with this one. Victims misplace their confidence, whereas victors put their confidence in the proper person. Let's begin with the first part of that statement. Victims misplace their confidence. They had put their confidence in themselves. They had put their confidence in one another. As we read from Jeremiah chapter 17, which was written hundreds of years after this episode, but had it as a backdrop, we read in the fifth verse, Cursed is the one who trusts in man. The man who, or woman who trusts in man without any trust in the Lord is a person who is actually cursed. But when we look at Jacob and Caleb, we see that they are brimming over with confidence. Let's read it one more time. It's worth repeating. Verses 7 through 9 of chapter 14. They said to the entire Israelite assembly, The land we passed through and explored is exceedingly good. If the Lord is pleased with us, He will lead us into that land, a land flowing with milk and honey, and will give it to us. Only do not rebel against the Lord. They pled with these people to reconsider. And do not be afraid of the people of the land, because we will swallow them up. What had the report of those who brought back a bad report been? The report is that the land itself would swallow the people of Israel up. But what do Joshua and Caleb say? Hey, we're going to swallow them up. They are bigger than we are, but that does not matter. Our God is bigger than they are. And He is the one who will be with us. He has promised He would be with us. He has promised us victory over every enemy which we will face. He has promised when we walk into the promised land, everywhere our feet tread, He will give to us as we follow Him and trust Him. Going back to Jeremiah 17, the reason that Joshua and Caleb were brimming with confidence is they were blessed because they put their trust in the Lord and did not depend or put their confidence in themselves. Here is the key. For you to be a victor as opposed to being a victim in this life, you have to make sure you're placing your confidence in the right person. The only person. Total confidence in Jesus Christ. And total confidence in God the Father. And total confidence in the Holy Spirit of God. Victims misplace their confidence. They place it in humanity. What can man do? Victors place their confidence in none other than the one true God. Here's a second contrast. Victims give voice to their unbelief, whereas victors give voice to their faith in God. Let's go back to chapter 13 for just a moment. 27 and 28. 
they gave Moses this account. We went into the land to which you sent us, and it does flow with milk and honey. Here's its fruit. But the people who live there are powerful, and the cities are fortified and very large. And then look at verse 33. It says, we seem like grasshoppers in our own eyes, and we look the same to them. This bad report which they brought had an effect on over 600,000 men, not to mention the women and children. A tremendously negative report. And verses 1 through 4 of chapter 14 give us detail about how that affected them negatively. Look at verse 1. We see the people in great anguish because of this bad report. That night, all the people of the community raised their voices and wept aloud. They were very discouraged with this report. It was a statement of unbelief on the part of these ten spies who had gone along with Jacob and Caleb, but come back with a very negative report. Verse 2 shows that they were grumbling. All the Israelites grumbled against Moses and Aaron and the whole assembly and said to them, If only we had died in Egypt or in this desert. Let me pause just a moment. Be careful what you ask for. Because all of them did die, didn't they? They all died over the course of the next 40 years. So they were grumbling. The Bible says in Philippians chapter 2, verse 14, do everything without complaining. Are you a complainer? Are you a whiner? Do you whine to the Lord like these people did? A sure sign of a low level of faith is a person who whines and complains to the Lord and about the Lord. In verse 3, not only were they people who were in anguish, and not only were they grumbling because of the victims who gave voice to their unbelief, the bad report, they accused God of setting them up. They blamed God for what they thought was impending doom. Look at verse 3. Why is the Lord bringing us to this land only to let us fall by the sword? Our wives and children would be taken as plunder. Wouldn't it be better for us to go back to Egypt? Do you have any idea how insulting that was to God? They were saying God lied to us. God is described later in the book of Numbers in this way. God is not a man that he should lie or a son of man that he should repent. Has he said it? Will he not do it? Has he promised? And will he not fulfill it? The only person in the universe I can be sure of that I can trust to fulfill what he promises me is God himself. I can lie to you. I can make a promise to you and don't fulfill it. I might not even intend to not fulfill it. I really intend to, but I forget it for whatever reason. I get sidetracked. But you know what? God will fulfill every promise He's made. In 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 56, years and years after, Solomon makes this report. Solomon says to the nation of Israel, whom he was king of at the time, he says, not one word of all the good promises of God have failed that the Lord made through His servant Moses. Not one word. And here we see these people accusing God of setting them up to be slaughtered, actually. Now, there will be times in your life, perhaps, that the Lord tells you to do something, and it leads you into trouble. And you're following the Lord, and probably you feel like, the Lord set me up. 
The Lord has duped me. The Lord really doesn't care about me. Otherwise, He would not have given me such an assignment. But we know that the Lord is with us in each and every situation. Do we not? Truly so. The story that is in my mind at the moment from my boyhood, studying in the book of Daniel, is the story of the three friends of Daniel. They're thrown in the fiery furnace. And the men who throw them in... The incinerator was so hot that those men who threw them in were burned up. But when Nebuchadnezzar peered into that fiery furnace, he saw these three young men walking around. They had gone in bound. Of course, the heat had incinerated the ropes which bound them. But they're walking around, he says, and there appears to be someone like a son of God in there with them. And guess who that someone was? It was, I would agree with those who say, a pre-incarnate impression of Jesus. Jesus was with them. And wherever the Lord leads you, He will be with you. Had not He promised these people? I'm going with you into the promised land. I'm going to blaze the trail. I'm going to take care of you. You are going to be successful everywhere you go. Then the last thing is, they put themselves in the place of God. They usurped the authority of God. Look at verse 4. They said to each other, we should choose a leader and go back to Egypt. This was not just speculation or wishful thinking on their part because Nehemiah 9.17 tells us they actually chose a leader from among them. The leader is unnamed. We don't know his name. But they chose someone. They insulted God again in this way. Not to mention Moses, who was their leader. So victims give voice to their unbelief. Their unbelief has shattering consequences for those who hear it and take it in as opposed to listening to the voice of truth. The victors give voice to their belief in God. Look at what Caleb says in verse 30 of chapter 13. Then Caleb silenced the people before Moses and said, We should go up and take possession of the land. For we can certainly do it. He had faith, didn't he? He knew God. He knew what God had promised and he believed. The effect that happens in the lives of people or people of of faith, many times the unbelievers, they're the ones who inflict pain upon them. In verse 10 of chapter 14, it says the people picked up stones to throw, to kill Joshua and Caleb. It's not popular to be a follower of God, but we can be sure the Lord will be with us. Some people would say, based on what I'm teaching today, the way I'm teaching this passage, and I think I'm teaching it correctly, that this whole idea of victors is sort of a pie-in-the-sky idea. It's an idea that neglects to look at reality. But let me tell you something. Christians, above all people, people who really know Jesus Christ and follow Christ, Christians are, of all people, the most realistic people in the world. They are realists. They understand what goes on. Let me give you an example of this from the life of Moses. Moses, the great leader of this grumbling group of people, After God had delivered the people out of bondage, they had camped for a while and 
Moses was probably catching his breath. He was elated to see the arrival of his father-in-law, Jethro. And Jethro came to him and they exchanged greetings. They inquired of one another's health. They went into Moses' tent. And then Moses says this. It's recorded in Exodus 18, 7 and 8. The Bible tells us that Moses reported all that God had done to deliver the people of Israel out of bondage, out from under slavery, under the tyrant Pharaoh, and out of Egypt. He reported all the good things God had done. Miracle after miracle. Ten plagues. Finally released the Red Sea. All the things associated with the passing through there and the destruction of Pharaoh's cracked troops as they were drowned when the waters of the Red Sea came tumbling over them and buried them in that sea as the people of God reached the other side. Then this is what he said. Listen carefully. This is what Moses said to his father-in-law. Not only did he tell them all the good things that the Lord had done, but the hardships from which he delivered them. And the scripture says, that cheered the heart of Jethro. This life of following Jesus is not a life that's free of trouble. Jesus promises us trouble, actually. He said, in this world you will have tribulations. But don't fear. I have overcome the world. I'm with you in that difficulty. The Apostle Paul says to the Corinthians, we were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure. Indeed, in our hearts, we felt the sentence of death. And he goes on to say, we do not want you to be ignorant or unaware, brothers, of the hardships we faced in the province of Asia. Two great men of God, Moses speaks of the power of God, but he speaks of the hardship of God. And then Paul, the great saint in the New Testament era, same thing. And what we need to know is, if we follow the Lord, we're going to have some trouble. Don't sign up if you're not willing to follow Jesus wherever He leads. And He does from time to time lead us into a fiery furnace. He leads us into the Red Sea. He leads us to places that are fearful to think about. But the Bible says, many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. Out of them all. He carries us through. So victims give voice to their unbelief. Victors give voice to their faith in God. They speak about it. Here's the third contrast. Victims usually are in the majority. Victors the minority. 603,548 victims. We can't do it. The Lord set us up. We need a new leader. We want to go back to Egypt. It was better there than it is here. How blind they were. But there were two who were victorious. They were in the minority. Not every case where the majority is in favor of something in the people of God are those people who are in favor, victims. Many of them are victors. But let's think for a moment. In our ministry as elders, there are seven of us who are elders, and we operate on the principle of unanimity in decision-making. When we're seeking the Lord about decisions which are related to our church, we don't just come in and throw some idea out on the table and say, what do you think? We come in, we talk about things 
we say, we need to seek the Lord about this. And we seek the Lord. And He gives us direction. There have been times over the course of the years that I've been associated with our elders that we haven't all agreed. We don't operate on the principle of majority, but unanimity. In other words, if five men say, I believe this is what the Lord wants, the other two say no, then we don't do anything. Because we believe God has one mind on any matter. And we wait on the Lord until we get full agreement, one way or the other, before we go forward. Just imagine for a moment, if they had operated on that principle, what would have happened? Probably we wouldn't even be looking at this story. It's conceivable that it would not have happened. Here's the fourth contrast. Victims are regrettable and forgettable. Victors are influential and memorable. Let's start with the first statement in this contrast. Victims are regrettable and forgettable. Look at chapter 13 for a moment. Can any of you, before looking there, can any of you name one of the other ten spies? Probably not. Let's look at them. Look at verse 4. The first was from the tribe of Reuben, Shemua, son of Zakur. How many of you have named your son Shemua? <laughs> Shamu, the whale or something, you know? Whales are named that, something like that. Well, nobody's named, I don't imagine any of you have a son named Shemua. The next one from the tribe of Cinnamon, Shaphat. Anybody vote for Shaphat for a name for your child, your male child? Verse 7, Egal. Verse 9, Palti. Verse 10, Gadiel. Verse 11, Gadi. Verse 12, Amiel. Verse 13, Sethor. Verse 14, Nabi. Verse 15, Jewel. Wow. You know, when my wife and I were thinking about names for our first child, if he were a male, we settled on the name Joshua. We picked the name, not because we liked the sound of it, but because of the man who first bore that name in Scripture, at least of, in our awareness, because we love the character of the man. And we know what the name means. It means salvation is what it means. It was Jesus' name that He went by in His home. Yeshua is the name in Aramaic, Aramaic rather. But Jesus being the Greek translation of the word. But what we know is it's a great name. And when we were about to adopt a second child, we didn't know the gender of the child in either case. We were talking and I said, look, Sally, I would like for us to name our second child, if the child is a boy, Caleb. Because I loved it. Now, it remains to be seen if we'd had a boy, whether that name would have been the one she would have agreed on. Because I heard one guy say recently, I wear the pants in my family. And then he paused. He says, but my wife picks them out. So, you know, it's kind of like, it's kind, it's kind of like the names of our children, too, right? There has to be collaborative effort. Correct, men? We think we're large and in charge, but sometimes we aren't. And it's good that God gave us wives to keep our feet on the ground and our knees on the ground, more importantly, too, in prayer. Not in obeisance to our wives, but in prayer to the Lord. Victims are regrettable. All these men 
met a fate that they didn't have to meet. 603,548 did not go into the promised land. Only two did. There are, they are men whose influence lives to today. We're talking about them. We're using them as examples. They are our teachers today. Thousands of years later. Why? Because they were men who placed their comp- confidence in the Lord. Who voiced their belief in the Lord. They weren't shy about speaking the truth. They were men who were willing to be in the minority rather than follow the crowd. They were men who were victorious and therefore influential and memorable. And here's the last thing. Victims are punished for their unbelief, whereas victors are rewarded for their faith. So let's look at Numbers 14 as we wind our time up today. Verse 36. First of all, the victims. So the men Moses had sent to explore the land who returned and made the whole community grumble against him by spreading a bad report about it. These men responsible for spreading the bad report about the land were struck down and died of a plague before the Lord. That's a sad ending, isn't it? That's what happens to victims. And then look at the victors. Remembering what the Bible says, that this is the victory that overcomes the world, even our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's where victory is. It's the only place anybody in any era, in any country, of any ethnic background, of any either gender, can get victory. It's in Christ. Look at verse 38. Of the men who went to explore the land, only Joshua, son of Nun and Caleb, son of Jephunneh, survived. Terrific. Now, I'm going to isolate on Caleb for a moment. We talked about Joshua last week quite a bit. I'm going to ask you to go to the book of Joshua, the 14th chapter. Holding your place there in Numbers 14. We're going to go back there, if I remember, to do it. Okay. Joshua 14, beginning with verse 6. Now, the men of Judah... Caleb was of the tribe of Judah, and Jesus, of course, also of the tribe of Judah. Now the men of Judah approached Joshua at Gilgal, and Caleb, son of Jephunneh, the Kenizzite, said to him, You know what the Lord said to Moses, the man of God, at Kadesh Barnea, about you and me? I was forty years old when Moses, the servant of the Lord, sent me from Kadesh Barnea to explore the land. And I brought him back a report according to my convictions. Look, victors have conviction. And the convictions are born of the truth about who God is. They are convictions that are rooted in the Word of God and the nature of God. Such was Caleb. Verse 8, But my brothers who went up with me made the hearts of the people melt with fear. There are those naysayers who make people's hearts melt. I, however, followed the Lord my God wholeheartedly. Let's stop here just a minute. Hold your place here. We'll come back here. And I want to read something the Scripture says in Numbers chapter 14, verse 24, about Caleb. God says, My servant Caleb has a different spirit and follows me wholeheartedly. I will bring him into the land he went to, and his descendants will inherit it. 
Okay, what was the spirit that was different in him? It was spirit with a capital S. The Holy Spirit is the one that made him different. And the Holy Spirit is the one who makes you different. If you're different, it's the work of the Holy Spirit in your life. And that's how Christ lives in us, by the Spirit. If anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, the Bible says he does not belong to Christ. If we don't have Jesus, if we don't have the Spirit, rather, in our lives, we don't belong to Jesus. We're just fooling ourselves. But this man was a man who had a different spirit. Now, turning back to Joshua verse 9 of chapter 14. So on that day, Moses swore to me, the land on which your feet have walked will be your inheritance and that of your children forever, because you have followed the Lord my God wholeheartedly. This is what it takes to be a wholehearted follower of Christ. We need to have the Spirit of God leading us. We need to follow Christ wholeheartedly, not just play at it. We need to follow with a whole heart. Verse 10, Now then, just as the Lord promised... He has kept me alive for 45 years since the time he said this to Moses while Israel moved about in the desert. So here I am today, 85 years old, 40 years in the wilderness, five years in conquest. They finally come to the place that God had promised Caleb, that Caleb wanted. Look at what he goes on to say here. I'm still as strong today as the day Moses sent me out. I'm just as vigorous to go out to battle now. As I was then. Now give me this hill country that the Lord promised me that day. You yourself heard then that the Anakites were there and their cities were large and fortified. But the Lord helping me, notice where his strength comes. The Lord helping me, I will drive them out just as he said. Now I don't think for a moment, and I don't want to take exception with the truth, but I'm certain I'm on solid ground here, that at 85... This man was not as physically strong as he was at 40, the prime of his life. But the strength that was going to be his, had he been given the freedom to go into the promised land, would have been the Lord's strength, not his own strength, at 40. 45 years later, though the outer man had begun to waste away, the inner man had had 45 years to ripen and to grow. And Christ was larger in his life then than it had been when he was 40. So he was ready to go. And I can imagine Joshua saying, go for it, bro. You and the Lord can whip them. And he went in and he took that hill country. There's good news for us. If you are languishing in the backwaters of victimization. If you're a whiner, you're a hand wringer, you're a person who finds yourself accusing God of not caring about you, if you think it's about time you changed God's, think again. You can be a victim, not a victim. If you will trust the Lord with all your heart, not just partially, but totally. In all your ways, acknowledge Him. Seeking the Spirit of God's control of your life. Saying, here I am, Lord. You know me. You called me when I was uninfluential. I was not wise. I was not of noble birth, Lord. You call me to be your child. And I'm trusting you, Lord. To give me victory 
for your glory first and for joy in my own life. Would you pray? Don't you want to be a victor? Are you tired of getting victimized? Well, there's a clear indication of how that can occur, isn't there? Put your confidence in the Lord. Trust in the Lord. Depend upon Him for all things. Would you just have a little time with the Lord right now? And say, Lord, forgive me for misplacing my confidence. Forgive me for voicing my unbelief. Lord, take control of my life in a new way today. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Think about this message this week and be a victor, not a victim.